All right. Good morning, class. Uh, welcome to the third installment of the Art Eater podcast. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Okay, so um, I'm your host, Richmond. Chances are, if you're listening, uh, this is only our third podcast, so you probably already personally know me. But uh, for those of you that, that don't, uh, thank you for listening. Thanks for dropping in. Um, so I'm Richmond. I'm your uh, host. I'm also here with my co-hosts, uh, Andy and Sean. Um, and uh, today we're going to talk about the decade in review in gaming. Uh, we're we're going to talk about the last 10 years uh, of games um, and what we saw as the, the big trends to happen uh, in the games industry uh, during the 2010s. Okay, so I thought um, the best place to start off would be indie games. I, I, I think um, for me, 2000, the 2010s were very much about... Uh, indie gaming and how it really just solidified itself. Uh, so many cool games, so many exciting companies popping up. Um, and, you know, like, uh, it, I think indies have really uh, matured uh, over the last decade and they're, they're just, you know, definitely here to stick. Any thoughts? Well, I want to start off with uh, when we talk about games, I, I like to go back to thinking about uh, a game like Stardew Valley. With, if you look at the crazy success of that game, it would be easy to forget that one guy made it. <laughs> oh, really? How does, like, I think nowadays, obviously, he probably has a team, but the, the fact that um, this is such a recurring game, it just had a massive update, which I think is probably now driven, but, uh, you know, in the previous version of the game industry, could one person have made a game completely by themselves and pretty much um, just skyrocketed success without the kind of, the community that currently exists. Yeah, that's that's a that's a big change. Um, I mean, I, I think single-person development is easier nowadays. Now that uh, you know, engines like uh, uh, Unity, um, Unreal uh, are, are so well documented. There's so many tools out there, but but still, it's it's a massive undertaking uh, making making a game by yourself. Well, now it's you also like uh, you can consult the. The wisdom of the internet, like to just find like all the troubleshooting you need. Like if you're doing that in the '90s, you have to figure out everything mostly by yourself. Yeah, yeah. Even even during the aughts, um, social media wasn't quite so developed, right? Uh, so it, yeah, like today, I can I can tweet something out into the into the void and immediately get responses. Um, I, I would say like in the early 2000s, uh, that might take like days to get a, uh, any any traction going on a subject. And then before that, it might might have taken weeks if if you got a response at all, right, in, in the 90s. Um, yeah, so the, the speed of communication, that's I think a big part of it. One, one of the things that I, I think is a really interesting subject for indie games is to me the the kind of creativity and the, uh, I don't want to say the return of, but the real like surge of creative and stylistic graphics. It's, if you look at uh, indie companies that have really flourished in the last decade, like Supergiant Games with Bastion, Transistor, Pyre, Hades, like they have a style of their own. And going back to Stardew, it's also got this like pixel saturated style. That's something that like, I would say AAA developers nowadays probably don't feel like they can do or won't do but this is a this is a scratch or an itch rather that's I think a lot yeah. of gamers nowadays really have, and uh, you can see that it gives a bit of a voice to these creators, uh, and it's 
yeah. something exciting to see. Yeah, I think um, uh, so you mentioned like Stardew and, and Bastion. I, I think those must have come out of the developers thinking about the games they grew up with uh, that they don't see anymore, and then just saying like, "Okay, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to make the games that I miss." You know, obviously, Stardew is very uh, Harvest Moon inspired, um, and uh, Bastion, the games from that company, uh, uh, visually the art style is really similar to the uh, the Saga games from the uh, PS1 era, actually, uh, PS1 through PS2, that, that sort of watercolor uh, 3D look. You could say that's one of the things that. Um makes a video game stand out from movies and more similar to like you know painting and other or mango where like an art form that you put on paper because you're not going to see like a an indie movie that's purposely a silent film or if it's black and white then it's like a very rare gimmick instead of like just what the person will always like continue doing oh uh, yeah yeah, that's true. Like a famous director might release one black and white movie, right? And then that'll be like sort of a novelty. Um, but but you know, in in indie games, people can just deep dive into this aesthetic that they love. They they just stay there. They just go deeper and deeper. Yeah. Although Mad Max Black and Chrome is super cool. Yes. Yes. Shiny and Chrome. Yeah, I, I can feel that's also. Um... Like, at the beginning of the 2010s, there was a feeling that, like, oh, um, only the, you know, the cinematic, live-action-looking AAA game or the, like, the everyman McDonald's mobile game are the only two things that will, like, survive. Yeah. It's like this decade proved that wrong. Yeah, especially towards the second half of this decade. Uh, I, I think um, we're seeing the return of... Uh, is is this a common term? Double A, double A development. Is that a, a accepted term? I I've seen it used because like because triple A has also been associated with like like a giant bomb that's just slowly exploding, like when it fails. <laughs> I, I've heard it passingly. I think uh, the general thought is that triple A was the term to mean lots of money and lots of budget, and then people yeah. were like, well, it's you're either an indie or you're AAA, and someone's like, well, there are some companies or people that are not quite, you know, a person in their room or three guys in a basement, you know, indep independently building a game. They are a real company. They're just, you know, doing things with middling budgets. So I think AAA yeah. became like, oh, yeah, well, AA is a way to talk about these middle-of-the-road companies. I would say... Yeah. Um, like the Dark Souls series from software, that would be the shining double-A like uh, example of a game, right? Is is that double-A? Is that... Uh, I, I would say, yeah, we're uh, like, I'm blanking on the developer name behind Warframe, but yeah, uh, but yeah, I think um, you're right, which is to say that um, certainly they, they got bigger and bigger budgets as they were making games, and they're a respected developer, but they generally, like, they were, for a while, they were, I don't think they're indie anymore because now they work under Activision, but for the first, for the beginning of the decade, for sure, they were going it on their own. Uh, yeah. No, yeah, I, I would say that's fair. I mean, it's not a scientific term at all anyways, but, like, yeah. uh, like like the two, the, the aughts were, were all about AAA development, right? I, I think that's when AAA became, like, a commonly known term, um, and, and that was when the uh, average, in quotes, game budget was starting to exceed like 40 million right 
like all all the big publishers were putting out these these 40 million plus budget games and it only ballooned from there yeah. um whereas uh, from software uh created more like intimate uh stuff definitely with smaller teams smaller budgets compared to uh you know your 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 activisions and and square enixes and eas well, I, I think also it's it's mainly because of and something we were talking about earlier is that when AAA was becoming a thing, it was because to put out a video game, you either needed to have a PC or a console for the most part. And then basically, as you see things like mobile phones, like the the Apple Store. I mean, Richmond, you remember when we were making what we call hardcore mobile games? It was oh, yeah. not easy to get them out. Like even for Verizon, like we still went through a bunch of hoops. And nowadays, like the Steam, Apple. Like it's it's not just it's so much easier to put a game action out and distribute it. There's aren't there aren't big companies holding the holding the the keys to the the castle anymore or keys oh, to yeah. the kingdom, whatever the term. That, that, that's definitely one of the themes of the decade is uh, just the ease of uh, making games and uh, releasing them. Um, there, I think as of uh, 2016, there were 500 new mobile games uh, every day, <laughs> every single day. 500 new games. Um, I, I don't know if the number's gone up or down since then, but uh, that, that's where it was towards the middle of this decade. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think that's another thing that we're, we're facing going into the next decade is um, overabundance. There's, there's certainly no, no, no shortage of games. Uh, there's so many things to choose from now. Um, and obviously when you have 500 games coming out every day, like they're, they're not all going to be gems, but... Adding on to that, imagine when you have three billion like Chinese and Indians all making games too, because uh, we still haven't really seen that much from China and India, despite like many many like outsourcing companies and game developers moving overseas from there. Like, uh, you know, one of the early 2010s indie hits was uh, Journey by Genova Chen. And, like, he just picked the name Genova for himself because he grew up with Fall Fantasy VII, and in his, like, English class, he's like, well, I'm going to be Genova, and then it stuck. Wow. Where is he from, originally? He's, he's Chinese, isn't he? Or is he from Taiwan, or is he from... Or... I'm just going to look that up real quick. Shanghai, you know, a... China. Yeah, he's from Shanghai. Yeah, I was yeah. going to say, uh, speaking of that, a like a surprising source of uh, successful indie games nowadays, and I think it maybe it's showing us what the future of uh, indie in China will be, is actually Australia. Like uh, Games like Hollow Knight and even Untitled Goose Game all came from Australia, which is not a place that you would normally expect video game development to come out of. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Florence, that was one of the big breakaway uh, mo mo indie mobile hits, right? The, the follow-up to um, uh, Monument Valley, right? Uh, so the, I think there was some overlap. Did you guys play Florence? It, it was essentially a, a, a streamlined visual novel for, for an indie Western audience. Um, Florence? Florence, I, yeah. I played I Monument know. Valley, but I don't think I played... Uh, yeah, Florence was, uh, like, the plot was about, um, you know, a young woman in... Uh, uh, so, so the development team's from Australia. But it, it's it's sort yeah. of like a modern romance. Um, the graphics are all like uh, nice hand-drawn 2D 
like the 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 and UI. Yeah, yeah, it's got a really uh, appealing style, actually. Um, yeah, it's a beautiful yeah, looking game. Looking at the art, um, I feel like this is probably how Aziz Ansari imagines his life. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> yeah, it's it's a very uh, precious game, but but it's really well done. It's not um, it, it's it, it's really tastefully done. And uh, to to go back to what you were saying, uh, it was developed in um, Australia. The, the development team was super diverse. You know, there uh, like yeah. I, I think the main game designer has a Chinese background. Uh, I know the 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 girl the main character is based off of. She's like biracial. Um, it gets into like how your your ethnicity and culture affect you. Uh, the whole what is it the third term? A uh, third culture. Uh, anyways, uh, my point is it's it's a cool game. Not it, it's a paid game, not a not a freemium game, um, and it was a legit hit on mobile. Uh, developed in Australia, and uh, when it finally released in China, they they were surprised to find uh, pleasantly surprised to find that was their biggest market. So. Um, yeah it, yeah, it really went against all conventional wisdom, and uh, I'm, I'm glad it did well. It's, it's a very uh, auteur kind of game. Kind of like, uh, word of mouth seems to be the most powerful part of, like, because it's, like, if I just hear a Chinese friend talk about something, like, oh, it's good, then, then it does well. Like, that spreads better. Like, I don't think there's any, I don't know enough about the market, but... I don't know of any, like, you know, like, tastemaker in China. It's just people liking and playing things. Oh, really? There's no, there's no like, PewDiePie of China? Um, well, who knows? Yeah. I think well, they're that... all cute girls eating fried chicken on camera. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, that, that's another major trend of the decade, right? Sort of the... Um, who are the people that, uh, where are the sources for game recommendations, right? Uh, essentially, yeah. like, you know, the, 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 the marketing channels. Um, I think it's shifted from uh, magazines and websites to, uh, uh, what, do you, what do you call them? What's the term for these personalities? Uh, influencers. Influencers, that's it. It, yes. it. it was definitely the decade of influencers. I, I think... When you look at um, how does a game get popular, and I, I mentioned the uh, Untitled Goose game uh, because I love the game, but also if you look at it, so for a long time, Untitled, Untitled Goose game on the Switch was outselling uh, Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. What? Think about that for a second. How does that even happen? Yeah, I, I got to add that even though Breath of the Wild came out a while ago, Nintendo games have like so much staying power. Like they, they sell pretty consistently, right? So and their absolutely. prices don't drop. Yeah, their prices never drop. <laughs> they, they only go up if it's a physical release. Yeah. Yeah. Like I picked up a Switch and it was like, time to download discount Mario Odyssey. He's like, nope. Full price. Just, yeah. Well, I think nowadays they even game companies and people talk about the success of games based on uh, the peak like Twitch viewership. I know. When WoW Classic came out, 15-year-old game, people were really looking at, well, how many people were watching it on Twitch? Wow, so that that is oh. a, a tracked uh, metric. Man, Absolutely. That kind of feels like uh, 
like Brave New World, you're just watching someone. Yeah. Well, there's the uh, whole joke even about uh, how well, Fortnite did the 2.0 thing, where it was literally the, they literally took the game down for two, three days. Oh and yeah, just had the screen, cool. and people just watch people watch the screen. Really? They, yeah. They like, just logged uh, in to look at the screen. Well, a black hole destroyed everything, and there was no interface. So that would be like if a 7-Eleven like collapsed into a hole. You would look at the hole, right? That's true. I, I would walk by and stare at it every day, yeah. But, but yeah. would you stare at other people staring at it via a camera? You know, if, if every 7-Eleven in the world imploded like that, yeah. I think, I think I, I'd be interested to know what other people felt, too. Yeah, Fortnite is... Oh, it's really neat. Like... It's both, like, super popular and, like, super mainstream, but also it does these fun things you would expect of, like, oh, it's, like, some kind of artistic expression, like, independent game thing. Oh, you know, yeah? Like, can, can you give some examples? Well, I mean, uh, everything collapsing into a black hole is interesting. And, um, well, just... I actually, I would say Fortnite is kind of, like, a big... Uh, like a, the, the point that all of these different 2010s ideas flow into. Um, like a while ago, I heard a talk from the Sonic designer, Hirokazu Yasuhara, and uh, one of the things, like when he defines actions in games, he uh, defines it as creative and destructive. Creative is like gaining party members, gaining armor, or um, like building a, a house. Destructive is, you know, like killing a slime, shooting the bad guy, and so on. But Fortnite is... Wait, it's Fortnite, right? The one where you build things? Yep. Yeah, it's like a... Because uh, I've been thinking about how, like, uh, you know, it's it's like a Looney Tunes game. You build wily coyote contraptions where you put a spring on the ground, and then if you angle the roof above the spring, it'll launch you at the correct angle to, like, fly on top of a mountain instead of, like, just go into the air. Wow. So it's... I feel like it, it really doesn't get enough... Uh, I, I'm Actually, it, it gets plenty of credit, but I, I don't, like, ever hear anyone talk about it passingly in a what, crazy, what I, wily coyote creativeness. <laughs> what I really like about Fortnite is it wasn't... It's by a AAA studio, Epic Games, but it was not engineered to be a mind-blowing, like, super successful game. It came out of, like, a game jam that they had. I think this was right before, uh, I forget the game designer's name, but the, the Gears guy, before he left. And when they first released it, it wasn't anything like it was today, and it wasn't doing all that well. Um, yeah. Yeah, so, so a lot of the cartoonishness was super new for Epic. The building was, I think it might have even been a survival game. At the beginning, that was why it was called uh, yeah. Fortnite. Yeah. I, like, their Battle Royale was a, like, oh, we might as well do this. Like, I don't know too much about the game, but... Uh, okay, so the, the development was pretty pretty organic then. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I, I, thing, they, well, that's also another thing. Like, you can't imagine a game like this quite in, like, not in the 90s where, you know, you would have to buy a new copy or in the 2000s where, like, it would be a, a paid-for big expansion, but in the 2010s, like, a patch can give a ton of content. 
Well, and, and at the time that, that Fortnite was being developed, they were really shoving a lot of their money into Paragon, which was like kind of their answer to uh, League That's of Legends cool. and whatnot. Um, and Fortnite was, I think they rapidly redeveloped it into a battle royale. So it's one of these things where I, I think it speaks really well to how uh, how this kind of live service model, them listening to players and then reconfiguring what they'd built. Like it's it's a I don't know if it's a direct um, opposite to what was happening in the previous decade with like box model shipping these awesome games, AAA studios. But, you know, you could really forget that Epic developed this game because the way that they developed it wasn't like the Paragons or the Gears of Wars of the uh, of the development cycle. It was really very, like I said, organic. It was. Yeah. And then and then as they started picking up steam with it, then they really started embracing pop culture uh putting in different types of events and giving people a lot of flexibility yeah. to have fun with it. Okay. Um, it, it sounds like people, uh, developers now, are maybe less risk-averse than they, they were during the, uh, the, the aughts. Like, um, you know, before you had a lot of data, but you, you would use that to, like, fine-tune um, pretty subtle stuff. And now you can make some pretty huge, huge changes to the actual, like, core gameplay. Um, go ahead. Go ahead. Also, uh, kind of going back to like when we talked about the you know Asian market, like China's Knives Out is, I think it's like uh, bigger than Fortnite and PUBG now. Knives Out? That is that a battle royale? Yeah, it's a battle royale, and um, it's I actually don't really know like uh, what makes it different. I don't even know if there's like face building in it because I've only seen like the third person shooter mode in it. But it also has like uh, crossovers with Evangelion and Attack on Titan, Ooh. so it's really big. Well, it's from China and it's it's popular in Japan too. Um, like the last time I was in uh, Tokyo, like uh, if I tell people like, "Oh, I work in games," like they would pull out their phone and they would go, like, oh, "I play this game." Uh, is uh is is not a Netties title? I. It is. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Oh, it's out on the Switch and the PS4. Yeah, like, um, and the Switch just came out in China officially, so I'm sure Knives Out will probably be a hit on, like, that platform, too, which is going to be much bigger than a phone. Okay. Uh, I wanted Uh, to mention, uh, so we're talking about the Switch a little bit. What's interesting to me about the Switch in this era we're kind of talking about is that you would think in this era, this this era of mobile games that we were expecting, that a device that is more or less dedicated to being a handheld device uh, wouldn't do well. But it, it is perhaps one of Nintendo's <coughs> greatest recent successes. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. It's I like my students. Most of them have switches, and like between classes I'll just see them like quickly getting in a game of Smash Bros or just trading Pokemon. I think the uh, it really does get people to just like meet up or enjoy public spaces more even if like all they want to do is play a game. Yeah, I I think that the the Switch embodies a lot of the uh, the, the values of this decade just as the Wii did for uh, you know the the previous decade. Um, again, it, it went against all the, the the obvious trends, right? That the, they didn't really focus on 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 powerful graphical hardware, right? Like it, it was all about yeah. just changing up the way you interface with it. You know, um, 
gosh, like if, if he had told me like, oh, it's a portable and a console, I'd be like, ah, oh, get out of here. Like, just choose one, right? And it's like, no, like this this thing actually works as both. Well, what's, yeah. what's crazy yeah. about that is is that some of the games on it are, are there's definitely a lot of ports on it, but there's a few that I think are arguably a better experience. Like playing uh, Diablo 3 or Dark Souls Remastered on Switch is arguably the best version of that game in terms of control and the feel of how it actually um, interacts with you from an input perspective. Yeah. What would you say is um, the difference in input? Or, like, what is that feeling like? What makes it better on the Switch? The rumble, just the buttons, or what? You, you know what? I, I feel like uh, I hadn't thought about the rumble until you just said it now. But I think you're probably right. I think there's an element of that that helps communicate it more. If I think about the difference between those games on other platforms and on Switch, it, it may just be that your hands are closer to the screen. Because I, I don't know about anybody else, but I almost never play these in console mode unless I'm playing with a bunch of friends in the room, like Mario Kart. Um, yeah. You know. So, you know, where I need it on a big screen, but otherwise, it almost feels like you're closer to the action. I know in Diablo, you have, the like, uh, the new kind of roll abilities, and you're using, like, actual, like, the, the kind of trigger buttons and stuff like that. They they feel much more, uh, I think we use the word visceral a lot, but they feel more impactful, yes. and the, there's not a lot of input lag, uh, which is, you know, more of the, the game itself, but even... Uh, if I go back to, like, if I look at kind of Dark Souls, which I recently started playing Remastered on the Switch, or playing, yeah. I was also playing um, Darksiders Remastered, which is a similar sounding game, but very different. And yeah. all, all the controls are not... like a Devil May Cry style, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, no, it's definitely one of the older style ones where it's the 3D action persona where you're doing a lot of jumps and flips and uh, dodges and stuff like that. And there's something about that dodge camera uh, in both games uh, where... The, the stick and the way that it, it rumbles and the way you use the triggers, you, you, it feels more like an extension of you, whereas if you're playing... I, I played Dark Souls originally on um, PlayStation, and then I think uh, and I think I played some on PC, and it, and it always... You know, I always struggled with it a little bit, but um, I'm actually much better at it on the Switch. Huh. Oh, cool. Um, I'll have to check it out on the Switch, then. Um... So on the Switch, I've been playing uh, Mario Odyssey, and uh, the the rumble is used super nicely to kind of um, show like what is underneath your feet. It it just the HD rumble. Um, it's like it'll become more and more sharp until you're standing over a spot that you can stomp, and then you get like you know you crack the floor or a hidden item comes out. And it's just like a really fantastic searching mechanic. Um, I feel like if uh, From Software were to make like a Switch exclusive game, like the way they did uh, Bloodborne for the PS4, it would be uh, an incredible experience because they would use the HD Rumble very nicely. Oh, the HD Rumble! I, you don't hear people talking about that very often. Well, it's it's weird. Like even on um, the Switch Lite removed it because it's uh, to make the it more affordable, so uh, uh, I feel like that move, like the HD Rumble, is just not going to matter as much, uh, um, which is yeah. really important because I would, um, I mean, even like Death Stranding, if that was on the Switch, then you would feel the rock, you would feel like uh, the ground giving out before you fall, and then you could <laughs> react before you get a visual cue. Yeah, uh, I mean, I'm yeah. 
I'd say also, even though I just talked about like two, we're talking about two AAA titles and also like a first party title like Super Mario. There's something about the Switch that we kind of were talking about how easy it is to build game, build and distribute games now relative to before. I really associate the Switch with very, being very friendly to indie titles. I feel like I play a lot of titles that I probably wouldn't play elsewhere, or I would have would have taken me a lot longer. Like I played Untitled Goose Game on the Switch. I played Cuphead. Played uh, yeah. this like. Uh, Advance Wars style called Wargroove that I that most people have not heard of. Like a really oh no, I have seen that one. Is, Those... is that the one where you you can have a dog as a captain? Yes, the the dog yes. uh, is an awesome captain, and he's he's both anthropomorphic, but he also doesn't actually speak, and yet he can command troops. It's it's actually amazing. Oh. who who would have thought that uh, Nintendo would have the platform for for indies as we close out the the decade? That that was a really nice surprise. Yeah, I was kind of expecting, like, in the early 2010s for, like, Steam to just be the only indie platform. Also very good with, um, you can get a demo for most of the indie games. So, like, once I got the Switch, I got, like, Mario Odyssey and Captain Toad, and then I downloaded, like, 12 demos just to check them out. And some of them are, like, they're very much, like, a one-man passion project, but they still have it on the Nintendo platform. Nice. Yeah, there's, um, I actually, uh, one of the ones that's like the Octopath Traveler, I wasn't going to play it, and it had a, it had a demo, and I was like, well, you know, the art style's not, like, right in my sweet spot, but I'll give it a shot, and I played the demo, and I really, really enjoyed it. I was like, oh, I guess I'm buying this game now. Uh, It's interesting that, that people talk about how the Switch is not the most powerful hardware out there, whereas Xbox and PlayStation seem to be racing to build the most powerful hardware. Uh, but yet you can play, like, Skyrim, and then you can play Diablo, but then you can play, like, Stardew Valley, um, all kind of on the same device, and it doesn't really uh, it doesn't really seem weird. And, you know, it, you don't really notice the lack of fidelity quite as much as you might expect. Yeah, I, I, I would say... say like, actually, Richmond, you go. Yeah. Okay, sure. Um, that's another trend of the uh, 2010s is uh, graphics don't really matter as much, or rather, art style matters. It's it's the, the technical, um, how technologically powerful something is, is, is not really that important. Like, games were powerful enough 10 years ago. <laughs> like, if you look at a game from, uh, you know, the best-looking games from, like, 2010 versus 2019, like, you're, you're not going to see that huge of a jump. Yeah, like, um, I don't know, Fall Fantasy Thirteen, like... That was a PlayStation 3 game, and it was about as good-looking as I need a realistic-ish game to look. Um, I guess graphical power is now like more uh, how much can you fit on the screen, too. Yeah, I guess um, th- there oh, are also some... The size, the size of the world, that's the big thing. It's like 2010, you can have like a realistic character. But then, like, uh, 2019, it's realistic characters in a continuous, seamless city. Yeah, I, I think that's the exciting part of how the technology is being used now. It's like it's not only to, to create photoreal games, it's to create, like, uh, to, to, to improve the gameplay experience, right? Like, like e- even pixel-based games, like, uh, now you have, um, what was that, that game where you're, like, a mage and, like, every single pixel on screen has, like, has physics and has like rules for like how it'll react to like fire and water and stuff. Ah, uh, yeah, we were, you, you know what I'm talking yeah. about, right? 
Here, I'll, I'll Google that. But, uh, you, you guys sure. go well, it's interesting that you, you talk about the, the size of the world. I almost feel like uh, we, we had the kind of the beginning of a movement and then the pullback from it, which is uh, things like The Witcher 3 or Skyrim, like uh, Red Dead Redemption 2. Like They're offering you worlds that probably realistically you can never actually explore. Um, and, and so I think that we started the decade out that way. Uh, into a large degree, this idea of not just open world, but giant worlds. And I, I think as we're starting to, to move into the, into 2020, actually, uh, I think the, you're starting to see a bit of a pullback into that with people asking for more single-player experiences, for asking, yeah. uh, for, for wanting more things that have directed story or have a bit more, uh, a bit more, um, more qual- like kind of the quality over quantity thing. And it's almost like we had to go all the way to the end of, well, now it's so big that you can't complete this game even if you played it every day for 15 years, you know? Yeah. yeah. I guess it's, oh, but... it's kind of like uh, in real life, you might go, oh, I'm, I'm going to get into hiking. And then you do that. And then you just kind of go back to like hanging out at the mall. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, by the game, the, by by the way, the game I was talking about was called uh, Noita by uh, Nola Games. That, that that's the um, really crazy uh, 2D roguelike uh, pixel game, where um, there's just like crazy physics, crazy interactivity with uh, every every environment. Oh, so so you said a word that I think is something I really want to talk about in terms of this decade, uh, but it it it, it underlies uh, a much bigger thing, which is roguelike. So that is a yes. type of game that really um, has existed for almost the entire industry, but had not been a big thing until recently. And you can think of, uh, there's a large variety of games that fit the formula of roguelike. There's like No Man's Sky, but then there's like Children of Morta, there's Slay the Spire. Uh, and then you're, I think we haven't quite seen as many large developers start getting into it, but this, this idea of, I'm going to give you a challenge by generating it, um, and that the actual loop around it has... Not not much to do with it, but the fact that we're starting to see that type of formula be satisfying and pick up with people is also pretty interesting. Mm. But, um, well, Dark Souls is kind like would you consider that uh, roguelike? With how kind of expansive roguelike games are, or things that are called roguelike. Hmm, it's an interesting question because I think. I think most people would tell you that Dark Souls is about um, frustration and remembering patterns, but I could also I could also see from a point of view how uh, it fits. Uh, there's also a a, a a genre called roguelite, um, which is kind of this like oh well it borrows elements from roguelike, but it's not quite there. And I wonder if Dark Souls would fall more into that category. Uh, I, I think it's sort of in, in the same has the same similar appeal but um it, it's not procedurally generated dark souls is like super curated super refined uh you know level design so, so when uh, you say procedural generation is part of the roguelike experience um oh, yeah absolutely, I, I, absolutely yeah, yeah can can we define roguelike right now can uh, just i mean i, I, believe I actually don't have a clear idea <laughs> I, I believe procedurally generated levels is Pretty important for roguelike. Um, Andy, you were talking about uh, Spelunky earlier. I believe that's a, one yeah. of the earlier roguelikes, correct? Um, I've uh, seen it credited with um, like uh, reviving the procedurally generated Metroidvania genre for the 2010s. 
Because it came out in the late 2000s, then it got like an HD remaster in 2012 or so. And then um, then uh, Cave Story came out uh, around the same time as the remaster. I forget if it's before or after. And then like La Mulana 2 came out because uh, part one inspired Spelunky. And um, Cause I also I, see like, a lot of student projects will start with something that resembles like uh, that, you know, the that kind of like squat pixel platformer style. It's a low, low. Um, it, what's the word? It's like you don't need really like expensive tools to to make a to start making a game like that. Oh, I'm not sure what the term is for it. But okay. My understanding of roguelike is that it generally just needs to under it needs to include procedurally generated levels. I believe it usually has to have permanent death or uh, like a lot of the roguelikes that I can think of have kind of death of the character as a mechanic uh, yeah. to a degree. Um, so, so I like I, you're I guess, expected to die. Uh, a lot yeah. of the ones I can think about, uh, yes, I think that is a big part of the formula. So in that way, Dark Souls <laughs> maybe is definitely in that realm. Um, okay. Actually, kind of going back to the last podcast we did, like roguelikes were really big on the PlayStation One, like uh, Azure Dreams, uh, Chocobo Deep Dungeon, and even um, even games like Ark the Lad would have like a super dungeon, like Call Fantasy Tactics would have a super dungeon. And um, in the 2010s, the Etrian Odyssey series is um, kind of has that turn-based exploration element and, like, a harsh combat element, but it doesn't penalize you completely for dying. I, I might be going a little off-path off with this, but I think it's it's actually pretty relevant to where uh, culture has been going in the decade. So roguelites, when I think about them, they, they take a lot of inspiration from uh, Dungeons & Dragons. And if yeah. I think prior to the 2010s, I think Dungeons & Dragons widely was not considered... Uh, the most, I would say, mainstream type of entertainment. But as we're seeing, uh, I can think of many podcasts like Critical Role that are a huge phenomenon that are spawning even animated TV shows that are based on D&D. So it's be and uh, I can think of many coworkers or friends that I have that are really into it and they pass it along to their children. And then if I yeah. further think of like roguelikes coming up and then you see other games also like Divinity Original Sin that are embracing the kind of ethos of Dungeons and Dragons, I wonder if there's something there in terms of Dungeons and Dragons becoming a mainstream topic among the younger generation that is making game types that rely on uh, the spirit behind it become much more successful. And I might be reaching there quite a bit, but it comes um, to mind. You know that uh, Gary Gygax, um, he actually, like, uh, the procedural generation is actually one of the very earliest uh, published ways of playing D&D. Like, all the way back in 1975, he wrote the Solo Dungeon Adventure, where it's just, like, a, a bunch of tables that you randomly generate what's going on. Like, you open the door and there's, you know, you roll and you see, like, two skeletons and a pitfall trap. Wow! 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 So, so it's pretty so interesting. I didn't know that. Back then, they were already designing for a single-player experience. Well, there were a lot of war games already, so they were already scenario-based. Um, uh, I don't know too much about like what board games were like in the '70s, but that is Gygax's background, and 
I actually uh, played Solo Dungeon Adventures uh, recently, and um, it was exactly like what we're describing now with like these games where you explore and you die and you uh, come back. Um, it was just like I was playing on a, a forum where we all like decide what one character does. We got some loot, we fell into a pit trap, and then died. So the next character comes in and like uh, goes into the pit trap to loot the body of the previous character. <laughs> wow. But um, having a uh, dungeon master arbitrate makes it even more interesting. Like uh, one of the things that happened was there was a a troll that was in a pit, and uh, like through role play, like oh, instead of just killing the troll, like we agreed to. Uh, help the troll because the troll's hungry and the troll will just help us kill like all the goblins in the dungeon so we can eat them <laughs> because we are much harder to kill since we have a torch and they fear fire nice that okay, is a nice to... yeah, yeah. Go, go ahead yeah back to video games but, oh yeah i was just yes, saying yeah yeah that's that's a nice snapshot of uh, the the decade, you know, collaboratively playing like uh, a game on the internet, and the game is from the '70s, going going back to like old school rules, you know. Well, I think uh, it speaks to the the kind of community aspects that I think we've talked about previously, but are kids coming up a lot. Is I think it's easy to associate the decade with things like live titles that just keep giving or things that are loot box driven but i think what we're uncovering is that in reality most of the games that are having staying power and are spreading influence throughout the industry are about collaboration uh even if they're single player they're ultimately that's a big theme you say it's like oh community building has always been there but how exactly is the community built and like what are the interactions that keep it a community I think that's uh, changed significantly with like how you know everyone has a smartphone in their pocket now. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, I... Something we, we did mention was like, oh, you know, like 2000s MMOs were like, oh, World of Warcraft, crazy amount of um, players every day. But now the MMO genre is like just uh, kind of plateaued and quietly there. But it's still a huge set of people to do it but if you were to right now look into mmos as they are you're pretty much going to come up with final fantasy 14 and wow everyone else yeah. uh, there's a couple smaller ones that definitely have a driven community but you, you would even look at that in general all of them are kind of falling under the same gameplay mechanics and tropes yeah and it, it's easy to be like oh well we just want new mechanics out of this but i think andy's very correct in that it used to be much more about community building, and that was a big draw of the game, and it's become so much easier to get the the fix, if you will, of building a community or interacting yeah. with other people through many other means. Like, I haven't played Fall Fantasy Eleven in years, but I'll just still, like, check out the Reddit, see what people are up to on there, and I still feel like I'm part of the Eleven community. So I'd say... Uh, to, to kind of draw us into uh, another theme, we were talking a lot about uh, collaboration um, and kind of community building, and you, you mentioned the Reddit stuff, and it's interesting how we've gotten to a place where we even build communities around games that are single player. 
Uh, Dark Souls, going back to you as a good example, or really most yeah. any game, uh, if you go online, you will find that there is a massive community behind playing Dark Souls. And to a degree, there is community in that you can you know, invade uh, games and you can leave usually trolling messages. But uh, there is something about this decade of gaming that has really built um, a level of shared understanding or community around any game. Uh, I even remember I, I played this little-known cover shooter, which we can talk about that influence later, called... It was, like, The Order 1776. It's, like, a weird... Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I, I got I actually really liked that game, despite the fact that it didn't do that well. And it was very much a, <clears throat> a Gears cover shooter with, like, a weird King Arthur premise with uh, steampunk. But there's actually a pretty vibrant, like, Reddit and game FAQs community around the game, despite the fact that it is a completely single-player game. And I always thought that was interesting. Well, um, I remember uh, when it came out, it's like, that That looks like... Uh, that's like how... That's actually how movies want to look, like, the kind of, like, lighting and the color filters. Like, Oh, yeah, that game was beautiful. Um, yeah, I, I, I remember seeing that game and being like, oh, dang, like, yeah, they, that, that the, the goal of... Oh, the game looks like a movie scene. Like it's it's arrived. Like that game really exemplified that. It's also well, um, you don't see many games where the protagonist has mutton chops. <laughs> yeah. I I would say that that leads us into having to talk about some of uh, other sets of influential games like Uncharted and Last of Us. This have like the, they were well known for being. Uh, cinematic, but they weren't just cinematic. They they did a good job of making you feel like you were traversing the world, that you were interacting with it. Um, yeah. And it's interesting that we, and granted, both of those games I just mentioned are made by the same developer, Naughty Dog, who also made Crash Bandicoot, which is a pretty <laughs> pretty large uh, change of what they were good at. But you know, we can always we can always change what we're good at, kind of like From Software did. They made Uncharted, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like. Uh... The Sonic designer I mentioned, he, um, he, like, advised, I think, on Uncharted 1. So Uncharted is, like, kind of based on the 90s Sonic sense of discovery and wonder and verticality. But, well, what I, I think it's interesting if you look at a, a very recent game near the end of the decade, like Jedi Fallen Order from Respawn. Yeah. Another company where you talk about uh, a company that's constantly been doing interesting stuff with their games but hasn't really found success until later in the decade. But most criticisms or uh, praises of Fallen of uh, Fallen Order is that it's Uncharted plus Dark Souls plus Metroidvania. Like it's all of these, uh, it's all of these genres that really came to being in this last decade. And they they remixed it a bit and then added a Star Wars layer to it. As well as, you know, um, I don't people give them enough credit for... Uh, I think that, I, in my mind, they're really the traversal wall-running company. Like, yeah. all of their games have featured that, and it's always felt progressively better. From Titanfall 1 to 2 to Apex Legends into Fallen Order. You can always a little like see the thing they care about, but I thought it was, it was pretty interesting if, you, if we could look back at a lot of things we're talking about, that uh, those trends have been important. And it's interesting that we really didn't explore them in the previous decade, large to a large degree. Yeah, they're um, like Respawn Entertainment, um, Titanfall, Apex Legends, Star Wars, Jedi Fallen Order. They're all they're all like very different, um, kind of like on the surface. 
What's what's also interesting is that Respawn actually came from the original Infinity Ward, which created uh, the, the Call, of, Call of Duty 4 Modern Warfare, which was arguably one of the most transformative shooters uh, recently in terms of... Uh, not like that it featured a modern combat um, time period, but the types of mechanics and the way that it introduced multiplayer, the way that it did incentivization. Uh, so I think we, we owe... Is that the one that, that popularized, like, if you do well in the game, then you get, like, a, a bonus power, like, summoning a helicopter? Yeah, yeah, it was called Perks. Yes, Perks. It's, it, it seems so so straightforward, and yet it was really not a common aspect uh, of playing yeah. of playing games at the time. Well, I would say, like, um, before that, the focus of first-person and third-person online shooters was, like, symmetry and balance like you don't want someone to feel that like they have an unfair advantage but then modern warfare is like oh you're doing well you know just drop a missile on a guy <laughs> yeah well I, and I, it's not exactly in the vein of what we're talking about but what you said reminded me a little bit of uh games like overwatch which also came into being in this this decade and i also was reminded of like well <laughs> What made that different? Because it's not the same thing as what Call of Duty did. But it reminded me of this, uh, again, we were mentioning collaboration. I was thinking, well, people that play Overwatch really love to play like League of Legends or they love to play Dota. Um, these are all games that generally thrive or require a team of people to play. So we've been talking a lot about yeah. single-player games, but there has been a huge advent of multiplayer games. And I think the previous ethos was uh, like Unreal Tournament style, where it's just you versus everybody else. The idea that um, not just that you were on a team, but how you interacted with your team really mattered. I think that was also something that hit its stride in about the middle of this decade. Yeah, games more more collaborative uh, multiplayer, right? And also like sort of a asymmetric design. Not everyone's trying to do the same thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, talking about shooters, I, I think uh, Splatoon uh, is is pretty exemplary of of all that, right? Like you. Um, it had some really cool uh, mechanics. Uh, you know, like, if, if you're not great at shooting, you, you can just help your team by, like, painting the environment, just trying to, like, uh, grow the environment, which which is sort of, like, uh, maybe a little bit prescient of the, the, the um, Fortnite and stuff, right? Where it's like, okay, like, maybe you're not just a killer. Like, you you can help build stuff. Yeah. You can help fortify. So, yeah, like, um, you be, like, the... By painting the map, you are fortifying it for your team. Yeah. And um, control-wise, like, you know, that's a Wii U game, even though the Wii U failed, the, all of the good ideas went to the Switch. And um, it used the motion control for um, aiming on the Y-axis to, like, quickly uh, look up and down while using the right analog to go left and right. I feel like that yeah. combination is just my favorite way of aiming in a game. Like, uh, I really wish PlayStation 4 games did that too, because the the light bar sensor and the PlayStation 4 and the gyroscope built into the controller, like, it's already good enough to do like something like Y-axis aiming, but they just don't do it. What's interesting about what you're talking about reminds me of. Uh, something that's happened a few times this decade that has not happened in previous ones, which is games coming out and not being very good, and then actually being actively developed until they actually do well. 
uh, what we're talking about also reminded me of Rainbow Six Siege, which when it came out um, as a predecessor to the the shooter that was supposed to be called Patriots, it didn't do very well. Uh, it didn't people didn't enjoy it. It didn't have a long staying power, and a lot of the design changes they made had to do with changing this this like heavily leaning into the system of operators, which was effectively their version of all the people are get guns right, but they're they have unique abilities and they have skills and they have personality and the way you put them together into a very hard game to come out on top is what makes it fun. And uh, over time, by adding that formula in and layering in to that, they really turned the game around. And now it's one of the more successful games on the market. Um, And I think you see that with um, not just shooters, but a, a couple of other games like that was something that before 2010 was, nay impossible like or nigh impossible and it's nay not a horse uh but <laughs> but you know like uh you and, and to a degree you can even see it like starcraft 2 was released in 2010 i believe and uh it was obviously people there's people that like the single player campaign but starcraft has always been a game about uh multiplayer and it's one of the ones where i don't know if it would have thrived in the same way that it did if it wasn't if it was the previous blizzard model of shipping a, a box and then shipping expansions. That even though they shipped expansions, they were mainly in service of the story, not in service of in you know improving the gameplay. And it's still nowadays it's still a game that you can you can play and it has a pretty healthy uh, base behind it that really enjoys playing it. They added things like co-op commanders, which is a uh, completely co-op versus um, AI mode. So I, I think that's something that, like I said, we really didn't see until about the 2010s. Uh, and I think it's that's one of the been more, one of the more transformative things around how we look at developing a game. Perhaps some to the negative as well, because like uh, <laughs> perhaps games like Anthem came out and didn't have enough of the good sauce in the original release, and they expected too much to fix it later. But you know, when some you lose some. Well, like at the very beginning of 2010, you had um, Final Fantasy 14 come out, and it yeah. was uh, it was just totally incomplete. Like nothing that um nothing was finished like the combat was never finished the story was never finished but then they just you know kind of they had to uh make a new game oh that's uh, that's right oh like nowadays everyone tells you that shadowbringers the latest expansion is like the best thing they've ever played and you're like, oh, well, I gotta get in and play a realm reborn in the next. Three. And they're like, no, no, don't play that one. Just play, play all the new stuff. It got way better. Oh, and they're um they're going to go back to the base game story, and they're redoing it to be like, uh, because it's still like mechanics from the early 2010s, but now they're going to update it with like all the things they've learned in the last nine years. Uh, just 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 for a quick recap for any any listeners that aren't familiar, um, Final Fantasy XIV came out. Uh, like like Andy said, it was a uh, pretty much it felt really incomplete. Um, it, it was just a huge disappointment, especially after uh, Final Fantasy XI, which a lot of people forget that came out before. Wow, uh, that was a pretty formative um, MMO. And uh, fourteen just like crashed and burned initially. And I think in the past. Uh, companies would want to just quickly sweep that under the rug, move on to the next thing, but um, they actually were just like, okay, uh, we're we're gonna pause. We're not gonna pull the plug. We're gonna pause and take a real sobering look at what went wrong with this, and then we're gonna fix it. 
know, and, and Sean, that's what you're talking about, right? Like this style of development just didn't exist uh, before this decade, really. Not, not, definitely not on the scale that it does now and um, with like, you know, the, the bigger publishers. Uh, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. We were, we, we were talking earlier about uh, AAA. Now I, I looked it up and I, I saw a term which I, I admit I have not heard, but apparently there's a term called AAA plus that references this idea that when you release a game, it's no longer, it's not just that game. You are, the developer is committing to developing it more or less in perpetuity. And if something is wrong, they're investing in it rather than abandoning it. Or like you said, sweeping it under the rug. Uh, and I, it's absolutely correct that prior to 2010, this was not how games were made. Uh, uh, you know, I, I, I will say, um, that's how Facebook games uh, were made. So it's it's almost like the the social games model uh, is 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 finding its way into these massive um, uh, you know console games, AAA uh, console games, for for better or for worse. Well, that's true, and I think that has to do with what we were talking about with the technology, which is Facebook games were effectively Flash or websites, right? Like we both worked on them. So oh, yeah. Uh, so it was much easier to update, whereas at that time it was still, you know, pretty cumbersome to put something on a console or a PC. But yeah, now that we've more or less enabled this to most every major, like ma every major console can get updates over the air. Um, and in fact, day one patches are a thing now. I, I don't even know yes. when that became a, a common expectation, but I've, I've read a number, like even if you watch gaming journalism, it's become a thing where companies will say, hey, this is a review in progress. They're not even willing to tell you what they think of the game until it's had the, at least the day one patch. Wow. Yeah, that's um, yeah, pretty much. Uh, I expect every game, like uh, every new game I play now, to just you know take a few minutes to download the patch before it really actually starts. Uh, also, a fun fact: Did y'all realize that Fortnite is still technically in early access? Oh, really? Oh. Yeah, I think I've read that somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I heard that recently, I and I was like, is. "Really? Are we are we letting them do this?" <laughs> wow, world's but, number uh, one game in early access. But but it isn't it isn't just them uh, being funny. My understanding is that it actually, when a game is in early access nowadays, it actually impacts your certification process with the major consoles. So being in early access or being in beta makes it actually easier for you to roll out updates more constantly. And I don't know the specifics oh. of it, but I thought that was pretty interesting. Oh, well, that that might change, like, how that works then, if it worked so well for Fortnite. Because you talked about uh, Facebook games, which remember, like, whenever we put out Facebook games, they were, like, perpetually in beta? <laughs> Just oh, yeah. like, we were rolling out updates, like, daily or weekly. Yep. Dungeons & Dragons tabletop, that's, that's pretty much how it is. Like, it's never finished. You never go, like, yep. This is the current edition is finished. There's nothing more to add. It's done. Ah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, D and D pretty much laid down like a lot of the basic language of, of video games, right? Like the idea of like hit points, magic points, levels, and and now games are catching up to that aspect, right? It, it's just it, it eternally, perpetually being iteratively upgraded. One thing I wanted to mention as an example we're talking about is this isn't just D&D. &D. Uh, one game that comes to mind that combines these two subjects we're talking about is uh, they're making there's a really popular board game called Gloomhaven if you haven't played it. Um, oh, yeah. And they're working on a yeah, they're working on a video game version of it which is in has been in early access 
And my understanding of uh, what I've heard from people that have played it, because I haven't actually played the, the video game version, is that um, it entirely deserves to be an early access on, like, Fortnite. Um, and that people people can now kind of... And my understanding is, uh, to, bring it, to bring it really around, is that this model of you can pay to get early access to a game that we admit is not done was actually introduced by Minecraft. Uh, really? Mm-hmm. And maybe there was like before that. Before that, it was really like remember the terms freeware and shareware and stuff like that. Oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Like uh, Spelunky was, uh, I guess, freeware, wasn't it? I think the original version was, but once they started putting it onto real consoles and real PCs, I think it had a more official development. But yeah, I seem to recall the 2006 or 8 version was totally freeware for Spelunky. Yeah, 2008 version was uh, freeware. Yeah, then it was remade um, in 2012, uh, the decade we're talking about, uh, for the Xbox 360, and then um, and then it was you know continuously released on uh, uh, other other platforms. Cave Story is that freeware now? Oh, it always was. Uh, Cave Story, the greatest indie game ever made, uh, in, yeah. in my opinion. Um, that that was a free game, free to play game. Uh, and then it was, you know, like eventually ported to different uh, platforms. There, there's some controversy actually over the uh, the, the porting to uh, console. Um, I, I, I don't know all the details, but um, yeah, it seems as if uh, it's uh, there's some controversy with the publisher. Supposedly, there some people have said that they're 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 stopping Pixel from making a sequel to. To uh, uh, Cape Story, which I don't know, the game's so perfect. Like I, I don't know if he even wants to make a sequel, but um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's free. It's free to play. And in fact, everyone listening, you could play it right now for free, and you should. Mm. Uh, I also wanted to mention something that just occurred to me as we were talking about this this kind of model in indie games is something that we also don't forget is that uh, this is the decade of Kickstarter. Uh, if I recall, Kickstarter was founded oh, yeah. in like 2009 or something. And this became like a major venue for funding games. I mean, there are some really serious, awesome games that were funded by Kickstarter, like the Wasteland reboots, uh, Divinity Original Sin that we mentioned. Uh, the, you can't deny that, that the idea of crowdfunding something took a little bit of the power away from game big game publishers, the AAAs, if you will, and put it put it back at least conceptually in the hands of players. Right, right, and then we, you have stuff like Indiegogo pop up, uh, you know, pretty much specifically geared for this, um, like uh, Indivisible. That was a game that my my company worked on. Uh, that that would, they raised a ton of money on on Indiegogo. And I think this also led to uh, the advent of services like Patreon, which kind of take the model and twist it a bit. But tons of game creators and influencers uh, get backing on Patreon, which if you, you all aren't familiar with it, is a service where if you like something someone's doing, you can kind of just commit to giving them money on a you know a monthly cadence, or you know you can, yeah. and you get like it's kind of like Kickstarter and you get some reward back for it. But I think all of these things kind of play into the spiral of what we're talking about, which is that I think this is the the environment that's caused indie games to thrive so much. Is oh, yeah. isn't just that they're easier to get? It's easier to find your audience, or it's it's easier to find someone uh, that wants what you're making or wants yeah, the yeah. things that you like. I, I want to say real quick about Kickstarter. Um, uh, it's really a marketing tool. Uh, it, it's it's not its ultimate utility isn't just like fundraising. 
it's to raise awareness of your game. Because um, a lot of times people just ask for like, you know, like a couple thousand bucks. Um, even you think like $3 million is a lot. It's it's really not much for like if you're making Shenmue 3, right? Like if you're making a huge game, uh, those things are so time consuming. There's so many people involved. Um, e e as streamlined as game dev is now, it's still pretty hard to make like a really robust game. But um, I'd say Kickstarter has been really good for, for marketing. Uh, you know, you set up these one month, two month long campaigns, right? People feel really involved. Uh, people will uh, be your mouthpiece. They'll go out and like retweet, you know, drive community. people to your, yeah, it's, it's community building. It's a community building thing. Like, uh, uh, I mean, you can tell uh, the name Patreon, it's like a patron. Like, you know, all those Renaissance artists, like Leonardo da Vinci, he was just being funded by a rich guy that liked his work. Yeah, oh yeah. I, I, I think Patreon is what people think Kickstarter is. Kickstarter is a marketing tool. Patreon is where you actually give money, oftentimes surreptitiously. Like, it's it's been a, a, a the greatest thing for, like, porn games, right? That's Patreon yeah. is, like, pretty much... You know uh, the the renaissance for like uh, uh, creator driven pornography <laughs> online. Yeah, interesting. That makes me think about like you know how much porn did Leonardo da Vinci make on the download that had to be destroyed like before. Oh. Yeah, never thought of it. Or maybe it was never destroyed. Uh, it's interesting you yeah. you talk about community building. Um, I just remembered. <clears throat> so on Kickstarter right now, there is a book called "You Died: The Dark Souls Companion," and it is a completely community driven book about like uh, just like it's it's basically like a love letter to Dark Souls. But it's also kind of thing where you're talking about where they're not trying to fund a game or anything. They're just a bunch of fans getting together, uh, making a tribute to the game, and maybe there's some. Uh, maybe there's some kind of finance behind it, but in general, uh, that was not a thing that happened, you know, until very recently, something like that. Um, yeah, that was more of a thing for, like, uh, like movies or anime and manga. Like, um, if you look at the early Gundam community, like, the TV show um, didn't do great, but then the toys did really well. But it was uh, these independent published uh, game magazines that really built up the community to just talk about the lore. To like, uh, and then a lot of these uh, fan-made uh, lore theories got incorporated into uh, the canon. Like, in Gundam, it's, well, why are you a giant humanoid robot in space, though the arms are useless? But then the fans figured, well, in a zero-G environment, like, uh, you rotate... Your, uh, you know, you just rotate around. So, like uh, moving your arm will cause a rotation that will realign your thrusters. So it's more fuel efficient to have the arms. Did, and then did they, they ever uh, explain the giant angel wings in Endless Waltz? Well, that's actually yeah. Um, they use them for uh, shifting the mass, and there's also thrusters on it. So it's like. Uh, this is uh, based on real life too. Like if you look at uh, large beetles, the the way they fly is um, they use their their arms, which are usually pretty large compared to their body. And if a beetle is in the air flying and it it turns its arm, like it's if it swings its right arm to the left, then that's enough to shift its mass to the left. 
so the wings don't move, but it'll start turning left just from the the, the mass shifting. And that's I meant that why... to be an entirely a trolley question, but you turned it around on me and gave it a pretty, pretty really interesting answer. <laughs> yeah. Was, awesome. uh, was looking into like how do you do realistic space combat, or why would you have limbs in space? Like that's that's something I was was just like literally like intensively researching last month. I think something that's uh, that I don't know that reminded me of uh, fans making games better, and what immediately came to mind was Bethesda games, and specifically yes, um, <laughs> games like Skyrim, which are basically available on everything, and it's like plus like the, the Samsung fridge and the TI-83 calculator nowadays. But when you think yeah. about Bethesda, is actually pretty well known for like bugs and having like a non-polished yeah. game, but the, their players goes so far out of their way that I believe, I think it's the console or the Switch version where it now comes with like a download manager where you can just apply user-made um, applications to the game and it makes it so much better. Wow. Yeah. It's, um, it's almost like uh, Bethesda is like a, a Play-Doh company, but then like the community makes molds for the Play-Doh. And uh, so- it's actually pretty similar to uh, the concept that has the Steam Workshop. And if uh, if you didn't know this, like uh, one of the new games that's making a resurgence, we were, we were talking a little bit about how RTS has kind of got on the wayside. Age of Empires 2 Definitive Edition is coming out, which is officially a Microsoft title. But what you may have not known is that previously, via the Steam Workshop, people had added like entire new campaigns and new races and new civilizations to the game. So the, the community was keeping it relevant and alive and actually one of my favorite subreddits to peruse is the aoe2 one so it's it's oh. interesting uh how there are many venues for people to for fans to keep games alive or relevant okay like i knew there were age of empires 2 mods but i didn't know like uh, it was still that active um i remember that was like uh one of the first online pc games i played um like right after starcraft one it was age of empires 2 I had to play it on uh, MSN because at the time MSN was like the where you went for games, weirdly enough. But yeah, I think that was a case where Blizzard had introduced Battle.net at the time, uh, and you know we, it's easy to forget that <laughs> uh, it wasn't easy to play games uh, together uh, for a while. That's uh, that's interesting that you bring this up, like this this community um, involvement in in all these games because. Uh, you know, if, if if you spend all your time, say, just on like uh, Twitter or Facebook, um, uh, you, you see a lot of like uh, uh, toxic <laughs> fan communities, right? Like you just see a lot of like arguing and uh, just a lot of general nastiness. But then on the flip side, um, you have these really, really dedicated uh, communities um, elsewhere, where, where where people are really like really putting their time into um, trying to make uh, content for these games and to try, try to make the experience better for each other. Um, so yeah, I, I think there's, there's, that's a really well, cool, like a positive. It, uh, it, it even, yeah. I don't know why it reminded me of this specifically, but the, you also to a somewhat sad degree, see communities that love a game that's shutting down, trying to keep it alive. I remember the community behind Battleborn before it shut down, put together like a Battleborn day and they tried to market it and get influencers and try to get an influx of people back to the game so that we played. Uh, you saw a similar thing with um, 
But with uh, what I mentioned before, uh, Epic's Paragon, like there were there was a, a fairly large, you know, relative to other things like, you know, thousands and thousands of people that do love these games. And it's also kind of a negative aspect of this era, which is that live titles don't stay alive. Yeah. If they don't have a yeah. server behind them or they don't have a player community. And sometimes it's just not a big enough community to make it financially viable. So that is maybe another thing that pushes people toward the indie side where they are developing games that do not require, uh, like you can p- play them in perpetuity. They don't require a server or community to stay alive. Yeah, if you have these perpetual games, like, you know, um, you're probably only going to stick with maybe one or two. You're not going to play all of them equally. So some of them were just just uh, wither. I uh, often make the joke that I've only got enough room for one MOBA in my life, and I think it's because a lot of these games that are developed that way, MOBAs are a good example, uh, sometimes they take so much effort to stay up to date with how fast the game changes uh, that you really have to be into it, Um, and I think it's inevitable that you eventually lose interest or you change your mind or you move on or life catches up with you in ways that makes it not viable, and I, I think there's something to be said about the two generations of gamers not colliding, but overlapping in that I think uh, our generation that's getting older and working more and many of us starting to have kids and all that kind of thing are finding different games that fit into their lifestyle. And the younger generation upcoming uh, has a much different way of thinking about the time they play games and who they spend their gaming time with. Yeah. Uh-huh. I would say the the Switch is a really good bridge for that. Um, I found uh, like a lot of you know the Switch has a ton of single player indie games that you can just walk around and play anywhere. Um, you don't need like to have your own TV to sit down and play. You don't need your own expensive gaming computer. Um, has has there been a much single player? finite experience with mobile games though with mobile um, with mobile uh i am if there has been i am struggling to think of one when i think of the most popular games on mobile right now they're generally things like pokemon go or in china a lot of mmos on mobile are very popular obviously mobas on mobile are pretty popular but i think you're right yeah i'm i'm actually struggling to think of uh, a single-player experience. The the only one that even comes to mind, and it may have been boosted because it was part of Apple Arcade, was the, um, I believe it's the, the Bratum Conspiracy, or Bratum, I'm, I'm blanking, but that was a pretty fun puzzle-based single-player experience. But again, had it not been part of Apple Arcade, I don't know how well it would have done. Okay. Um, actually, uh, adding on to that, um, the single-player experience for mobile would be reading books. Like, there's been a really big uh, light novel boom in uh, China where, like, people just write kind of like uh, pulp stories where they release a few chapters and then, like, people download them or buy them. I'm not sure how they make money, but, like, there's a lot of popular uh, pulp novels, at least in China. And I feel like it's only going to take one small step to go from, like, here's a wuxia fantasy swordsman pulp novel to here's a wuxia fantasy swordsman single player rpg <coughs> rpg um i mean I, I i mentioned a florence before you know um so yeah, yeah. you know monument valley that was a big single player hit uh, the previous decade you know 
bucked the trend of freemium. It was a paid game. Uh, Florence is exactly what you're talking about. It is it is pretty much a visual novel. Um, it's like a small, intimate story, and you just you pay once and you you get the game. Like you know, you, you own it. It's 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 a personalized experience. I wonder if it, uh, as much as people brush over it, I think it really nowadays has to do with um, mobile has a lot of um, roadblocks to immersion. And one of the big ones, and we were talking about why does the Switch feel better for certain games or whatnot. And I, I think it has to do with the fact that the the way the controls translate to how you play a game is really yes. important. And your ability... Absolutely. I mean, we, we talk about all the time back in the day when you play fighting games, like the difference between a good feeling fighting game and a bad one often is how reactive the character feels oh, yeah. to your control inputs. Yeah, like uh, I remember playing like, you know, a fighting game with a third party controller. It's like, man, this sucks. I need the expensive controller. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> like uh, the Switch being out in China now, like that's going to be... I think there will be a single-player RPG from China boom um, because that's what many, many game developers in China grew up with, like just pirating things or playing like, you know, a pirated stuff on the PSP. Um, but now they like can develop games. Now they have the Switch, and now like people are willing to spend money to enjoy a story. I, yeah. I wonder if the thing like this, the you know, how the Stadia controller has like a phone cradle that can play some of the games on it, and like you you can probably realistically carry around a controller with you and like hook it up to your phone. It still feels goofy, but maybe that's the way that that they get past this hump of the kind of control scheme on the mobile phone. I, I will say, um, virtual controls uh, got a lot better uh, this decade. Um, they, they used to be terrible. Uh, I, I think maybe part of it is just that the hardware is better, so it, you, you have less hiccups, less uh, delay inputs. Um, but uh, yeah, like like that's why um, uh, that's why the battle royales are, are so popular, right? Like the average phone now can can run these games, and the virtual controls are are not bad. They actually work all right. So you know? so one thing that I think is really interesting that I want to point out, and I'm going to use Nintendo to prove my point is games that are specifically for mobile that are not like a, a you know a Fortnite or a PUBG where they're porting a title onto the device. Mm -hmm. uh, the ones that have done well are all portrait. If you look at Clash Royale, and then here's where I'm going to pull Nintendo into it, and if you look at their Animal Crossing game, if you look at Super Mario Run, if you look at Pokemon Go, which is Niantic in collection, but it's still a Nintendo, mm -hmm. all of these are yeah. portrait, uh, which is how most everybody holds a mobile phone. And I think there's something to that. It's a much more natural control scheme. It's easy to do quickly. Um, you don't you don't feel like you have to, you know, dedicate your attention to like turning your device around and loading up yeah. the game. And I, I actually think, and the reason I bring up both Nintendo and Clash Royale is even Clash of Clans, arguably one of the more successful mobile titles ever, transferred a lot of that success into a, a derivative title of the that IP, the Clash IP. And they did it via uh, a completely portrait-locked interface, which is was super bold, I think, at the time. That, yeah. That's a good point. Um, it's kind of... It also just looks cooler to hold a phone with one hand. Just more well, I mean, aesthetic reason. Phones are all about 
doing stuff while doing other stuff. Like you want to be in a meeting yeah. playing playing a game, you know, or you know you want to be, you know, on a train playing a you know a game. And sometimes it's not as easy to have both hands occupied. So more ergonomic. Mm-hmm. But but I mean conversely, you do have uh, this explosion of like mobas and. Um, and battle royales, where, where people are furiously, you know, tapping and swiping uh, in in landscape mode, uh, on, on on a huge scale worldwide, and um, that that's a big difference for this decade. Like, uh, you know, ten years ago, if, if if you were to say that, like, really actually hardcore games would would become mainstream on mobile, uh, everyone would say like, no, you're crazy. It's just you know going to be like farm farm games and puzzle games forever like uh yeah i, I think maybe the the audience has has matured and they they just want like a deeper experience even on mobile uh don't, don't get me wrong i think it's going there but i think it's interesting that there are no games that started on mobile that have achieved that yet it's oh, almost yeah. like you have to have the mental the mental setup to be like oh i'm playing a a console or a PC game yeah, that's on my true. phone. Yeah, I yeah. mean, you're still making a concession. It's still a inferior experience to playing on the console, and and to get like, yeah, the Switch is 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 perfect for that. It's portable and it has uh, the controls. Uh, like like for me, um, what, one of the biggest barriers you're talking about, like interface barriers. Um, I hate having my finger blocking the screen, like. That is just a conscious reminder that, like, I don't, I'm not really immersed in this. I, I can't even, I can't get a good look at the screen because my finger's in the way all the time, you know? It's it's intuitive in terms of, like, uh, hitting the button, but it, it turns the experience into, like, navigating a website, not not being deeply immersed in, in a world. You know, the yeah, PSV was supposed to solve that problem with the back touch screen. Did it? <laughs> yeah, not very many games made use of that, though, right? No, it's unfortunate. I, yeah. it, it reminds me, I was uh, on a plane playing, and again, I'm blanking on the name of it, but it was a 3D RPG that comes with Apple Arcade. It looked pretty good, and it had like a pretty, you know, like a tap combat system where you move around with the left and you tap to hit. And uh, but I realized like it, it's a 3D one that had a dodge mechanic, and swiping and double tap swiping was the way to dodge, and I. The entire time I was having, I was struggling to enjoy it because I just could not. Um, like it's not that I couldn't dodge stuff, but I had to come up with a system of tapping the wrong way in order to get the character to respond the way that I wanted to. Um, oh. Yeah, like, uh, like you know what I mean. Like I, I had to like adjust the delay in my mind, and I had to like tap in the wrong area. Like okay. I kind of worked around it, but I. I got to the point where uh, I got continually more frustrated. Like when I was fighting like cartoon crabs, it was fine. But when I was starting to fight like big bosses and stuff like that, um, there was just no way for me to feel like my inputs were translating into this character. And you're right. Like it really, even the simplest things like that break your immersion. Cause like you can't, you can't get into that place where you feel like you're controlling what's on screen. It's more like you're giving the character suggestions and they're considering whether or not to, to do what you want. Yeah. The um, input is important, like, uh, in teaching, in thinking of, like, just kind of a good uh, structure of how to categorize, like, game inputs, in thinking of it in three parts, like the planning phase, execution, and then reaction, and 
different games will emphasize different phases. Like, I, I kind of feel like, you know, 80s and 90s were all, a lot of them were about execution, you know, like dodging and like Rockman, like getting a good jump in Mario. Mm -hmm. But uh, I feel like 2010s, uh, there seems to be, well, I don't know, maybe in the 2000s there is less of an emphasis on like exact execution. Like, I felt like the MMO genre, like, you don't, because of online lag, you can't have like super precise timing. And then like a fighting game suffered like when they, like the primary way to play was online instead of an of, uh, arcade. Oh yeah, they never but, recovered from that, yeah. Well, that's true. Most MMOs, the classic style, use tap targeting, right? Which you, you're right, it's suit like it's sort of real time, but yeah, the it's more about planning a use of your resources and the, the timing isn't as important. Like you have a large window of execution. Yeah. Oh, and it reminds me of a lot of games that have been... Uh, I had mentioned earlier that uh, it looks like games like uh, the XCOM style, um, the, the kind of the overhead... A lot of turn-based games are coming back, and I, I wonder if it has something to do with that, like where it's not quite like a Facebook game where you know you, you have timers to force you to asynchronously play, but a turn-based game kind of allows you to interrupt it when you feel like you want to and allows you to plan, and to your point, yeah. the input is no longer quite as important. Yeah. Um... But with um, Final Fantasy XIV, um, I think their innovation for the MMO genre is bringing back execution, not as a timing thing, but as a rhythm game. Um, like playing XIV, uh, I found all the classes, it feels like playing uh, like Dance Dance Revolution. Like you have to hit like your combos and then use cooldowns like between your combos. And, oh, um, yeah, yeah, not... that's right. It, it starts off feeling really slow, and then once you start being able yeah. to chain moves together, even though, like, the, you, you have pretty generous windows to hit the chain, uh, you're right. Yeah. Like, if you don't do something in the right order and you don't hit the rhythm of your cooldown properly, then you have a really punishing cooldown, and you have to start the, the sequence all over again. Yeah. Um, and I've, I've heard that, like, uh, World of Warcraft is moving in that direction now, in that um, they're focusing more on... Your global cooldown does a pattern, and then you leave your in other cooldowns in between. Like it's no longer putting like all of your buffs on one macro to just, or all of your attacks on one macro that don't have like animation locking. It's it's surprising how much balance changes when they even take one ability off of the global cooldown. Like the just the the, the ability to have separate cooldown timers in a game like that. Um, even in a case where you, you know, like you're auto attacking at a certain rel you know, at a certain interval, so you don't really have as much control over that piece of it. But now that you mention it, yeah, I think you're right. There is a there's a lot of flexibility in exactly how you handle that because it can make the game feel slow versus fast, you know, versus responsive. Um, but then there's really there's nothing that you're reacting to. Um, that's something I I don't like about most MMOs, uh, 14 included, in that. Um, I'm not really, like, reacting to the boss. I just know, like, okay, it's going to use, like, its tank buster ability. I already planned that. Everything is planning and then execution of your plan. Um, there's few surprises because I guess the collaborative nature, like, if you don't, um, you kind of pull down the party if you don't know what to do. And then that, like, will lead to arguments. But, uh... Now, the game that's been going strong all 2010s that's not come out in America is Fantasy Star Online 2. And that's uh, 
Well, I mean, it's not an MMO, but it is like an action RPG online, and it's very much about reacting to bosses. And how how many players uh, can play at a time in that game? I think it's like Monster Hunter, isn't it? Four? Oh, it's just it's still just four. <clears throat> um, I don't know. Do they have big twelve? Actually, uh, it's bigger than Monster Hunter. Okay. <clears throat> go go on. But um. I feel like there's so many good ideas in fan, uh, Fantasy Star Online too, but for whatever reason, they just never officially released it in the U.S., even though it was, like, I think in English in one of the Southeast Asian versions. Like, well, it's, uh, it's published by Sega, right? <clears throat> yeah. It's not like they don't know how to put games in America or EU. So, well, yeah. But what, what are oh, some of the innovations? It, it looks like they're planning to bring it out in North America in 2020. <clears throat> Like uh, what I was talking about with, um, say, the three phases of planning, execution, and reaction. And um, Sean, you mentioned also, uh, you know, Mass Effect. That's a shooter RPG. Like Fallout. That's a shooter RPG. Like uh, these combination of different types of action with RPG mechanics. Like um, Fantasy Star Online Two does that. I played uh, years ago. I played it like just in um, Japanese looking up a guide and like using uh, the ranger class with a gun. They have two different branching play styles where you can just play it like a third person shooter where like if you hit the enemy in their head or whatever their weak point is, you get a you know critical hit. Or you can play it more like a, you know, you just lock on and then you shoot without like aiming. And then uh, you have, like, I guess some percentage chance of just doing a critical hit. But they were balancing a very, like, precise execution play style versus a planning play style. And it's the same game, the same class, with two different paths. Mm. Oh, that's interesting, yeah. Mass Effect actually was very similar <laughs> to that in that, you're right, it's a, it's a bit of a disconnect at first because everything feels like it's happening in real time, but in reality the stats are being compared and it's comparing where you do things and the timing is a little bit less important uh but it gives you it gives you that flexibility to do planning in a real-time environment or a real-time feeling environment uh without um worrying about like the execution being quite as important uh which i think is overall gives a wider range of players the ability to enjoy it yeah um, I haven't played it at a high level, though. Like, I'm sure there's probably, like, at the top level, one is probably better than the other. But, like, I haven't heard any, like, loud complaints about sheer imbalance either. Hmm. By the way, um, you guys ever read that article about, like, the effects of, uh, like, Call of Duty versus Mario on the brain? <laughs> uh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 for yeah. our listeners, it was about how, like, uh, they did this study where they just had people play one of the, I forget which Call of Duty online all the time, and, like, their hippo, their hippocampus started shrinking. But then uh, playing Mario <laughs> the same amount of time, their hippocampus grew. And the difference was it's, like, um, Call of Duty, if you're on the same map over and over, it's, uh, you just kind of passively remember it and then you're looking for a trigger you're not like actively i'm not really sure what like the the right word is to use but it's like in mario you're looking around something and you're like 
kind of like trying to unravel something. In Call of Duty, you're like waiting for a stimulus to shoot it, like to react to it. Um, well, it's interesting, yeah, because Mario has always valued overall like creativity over reaction, right? Well, I I think Mario, like you have to be fully engaged. Um, say even if you've played it like a hundred times, you still need like a lot of situational awareness. Whereas, um, Sean, I, I think you, you've observed this before. Like, you remember, you know, like, just in college, have, watching someone try to beat, like, a shooter on, like, super hard mode, and they just kind of keep dying and dying and die, and then they eventually make it, and it's, like, it's not even, like, they were playing their best then. It's just, like, their their flesh-and-blood algorithm eventually overcame the computer algorithm. Like, that's, that's what it yeah, felt yeah. like. Yeah, well, yeah, I remember... Uh... Me and Jason had that when we were playing like Gears of War on Insane or yeah. Call of Duty on Veteran, yeah. and it was you just had to brute force your way through the level, and like it was really just it was it wasn't just memorization, it, yeah, it was exactly that. It was it was almost like building up a muscle memory, like you yeah. weren't solving a puzzle or anything. <laughs> I mean, it still felt pretty satisfying, but it, basically, what the game was doing was forcing you into such a narrow window of parameters that you pretty much just had to keep running it until you stayed within the lane of parameters that allowed you to beat the level. Yeah. <laughs> I guess it's um, in a shooter simulating like Sonic Speed Bullets, um, when you die, you actually don't, like, a lot of the times you don't know what you did wrong or you didn't see it coming. But in Mario, it is a game of, like, perfect knowledge there's nothing that's going to hit you from off screen. You're going to see the fireball coming at you. There's always time to react to something. Um, I'd say a shooter kind of hits this interesting space in reaction where like the planning is kind of your reaction. Like uh, your defense is planning, but your offense is reaction. When you see the guy, you shoot him. To not get shot, you have to predict where they are and just... Uh, have a good feel of like where all the cover and the shooting angles are. So th yeah. this is reminding me of uh, something that I think we would re remiss if we didn't talk about, which is uh, collectible card games, which require almost no actual reaction speed, uh, but they require a tremendous <clears throat> amount of <clears throat> luck and problem solving at the same time. Yeah. Um, this has definitely been the decade of collectible card games. Yeah. And they're they're yeah. not even cards anymore, you know. Like they, they can be <laughs> the, the interface is totally different. There's, yeah, I have to say the these... Fall Fantasy card game is really good. It's something I play in person, uh, but I do find like I'm kind of lazy about like memorizing what cards do. So either my turns are really slow, or like I just don't really pay attention to what my opponent is doing, and then I like mess up because their killer-death-winning combo has been set up. I, and I, I, I actually, what you're talking about is I, I realize uh, I'm not very good at collectible card games. I play like Hearthstone, and I play Gwent, and I play Eternal, and I realize that um, the less I'm paying attention to the game, the better I tend to do. And that's really? entirely anecdotal, but that's my strategy for winning at those games. But it, what's interesting to me about that is. I, I would suspect that it, it kind of became a thing at least initially for a lot of people because I guess making a cool-looking card is a little easier than animating a full character or building a level, but it's also easier to build layering of rules into a system. But it's interesting to me is that there's so many that have come out and there's 
almost seems to be no rhyme or reason as to what made them successful because uh, of course you had a Hearthstone that really pulled the 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 magic the the gathering out of uh, real world and into games, but then you had uh, things like Eternal and the Pokemon trading card game that did pretty well. You know, Eternal wasn't based on a re- previous IP, as far as I know. But then you had Valve making an entry with Artifact that, as far as I'm aware, completely crashed and burned. So, it, it's... I'd so say, uh, Magic, that's one of the early, like, a, a game that creates a community outside of the game. Because you have to have a community to get the cards you want. Oh, Friday Night Magic, man. It's, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah it you doesn't, have to trade, yeah. Yeah, when it, and it doesn't feel um, loot boxy like I think a lot of games are starting to feel, where the only way you get the cards is by paying or playing or grinding a ridiculous amount. I think you're right. I think Magic hit that like kind of perfect level of complexity, and as well as like it doesn't feel bad to achieve to to gain cards. And even though you pay yeah. for card packs, it doesn't feel like a transaction. Yeah, they um a lot of the chase rares. Like, the loot boxy element is for an aesthetic. Like, here's the card, but now it's shiny. Now it has a different art. Now it has a different border. Mechanically, it's the same, but this is, like, you know, a rare art variant. I like that kind of uh, loot box. So another thing that this made me think of that I actually realized I don't think would have happened outside of this decade so far is the idea that I uh, remember a lot of games used to just put like great mini games in them. And I think uh, what, what made me think of this is so Gwent is a card game that existed entirely in The Witcher and then they made it yeah. into a standalone card game. And I was like, well, the combination of technology and distribution and scale that it had to come together in order to make something like that possible to spin off your own successful card game version of a game you developed as a mini game. That's got to be a new trajectory for for gaming. You know, um, kind of a, a game that's not out this decade, Final Fantasy VII Remake. Like, the original Final Fantasy VII had, had an entire tower defense game inside of it before, like, that genre super took off in, like, StarCraft custom maps. It had like a whole snow uh, snowboarding game, and you could say like the the bike game in Fall Fantasy VII was a in all well, it was a finite runner, but it was an auto running game that was, you know, very complete. So I guess for the next decade, I wonder if Seven Remake will still have all of those mini games, but now fleshed out for, you know, PS4, PS5. I don't know why it's, it's this is making you think of games that were definitely not in 2010s, but I was recently playing a very old PlayStation 1 game called Legend of Ligaya, and there's a portion yeah. of the game where you get to, like, a uh, arcade thing, and it's got, like, a bunch of completely fleshed-out games. Like, it's got a fighting game in it that is completely incidental. It's got, like, a boxing game that's completely incidental. Um, and it's also got... Um, I'm trying to remember the name of... Um, it's almost a slot machine, but it's got more tactics to it. <laughs> And I just realized recently, like, Shrikoden 2 had this as well. Like, yeah. it used to be a thing where all these RPGs would just build entire other games into their game to make sure that it was a good experience. And it seems like now the potential is for you to do that, but you can also, if it does well, like Gwent, you can actually pull it out of the game that birthed it and make it into its own thing. That seems really, really cool to me. Yeah, um, the I'd say in the, the aughts, like the barrier of entry for something totally new would be like, we need 
uh, you know, do we have the, uh, the art team to do all the graphics and like motion capture for animation? But uh, in the 2010s, like some of that like very nice looking graphics are maybe a little cheaper to do now. I'm not really sure. But um, like say a, a real, like a, you know, a Tekken 7 looking fighting game is what people expect if you do have like people punching and kicking each other in a modern 3D game. But in Legend of Ligaia, like, uh, you don't need, uh, like, a motion capture to, to get, like, the very realistic-looking attacks for, like, a PS1 chunky 3D. I mean, I'm pretty, to be fair, I'm pretty sure they use the exact same animations from the actual battle system, but that's just creativity in my mind. Yeah, I think that was just the development style back then. Um, I mean, the way games were made on average back then is closer to how people imagine indie games being made now, right? Like, what was considered a, a mainline, the equivalent of a AAA game in, in the 90s was still made by, like, small teams and people saying, like, hey, I have this idea. And then everyone has, a, you know, like, a good laugh, like, hey, that's awesome. Like, let's just do it, right? And... Um, I think you kind of see that uh, people returning to that now just because uh, uh, the tools allow uh, far more rapid development now. I mean, uh, uh, KFC released a visual novel, you know, in this year, right? Like, Did, out of nowhere. Yeah, they, yeah, they dropped an entire visual novel with really nice uh, graphics, just fleshed out and nice, like, anime style. Uh, graphics, a uh, whole game, <laughs> and and it and it's because you know you're able to develop quicker. Uh, it, you you have the distribution is is instant over the internet. The marketing is instant. But I'd say one more thing uh, that that is really important, actually, really really important for this decade is um, there's so much more talent. There's so much more development talent now, and it's not localized only to like America. In Japan and then like pockets in the UK and, and France it's like everywhere in the world like you you're, you're getting really really talented hard-working knowledgeable developers now um, especially on the art side I mean, I mean and to, and to be honest uh, I think earlier on uh, you and I both know this it used to be that like to get into working on games is a very small industry and in a lot of ways it still is but you had to like yeah. get your foot in the door anyway you had to work really hard you had to do whatever you needed to do. And now with all these indie games doing well, I would imagine that people are seeing that and thinking, I don't need to get into this special club or have this specialized training or get my foot in the door or take on a really, you know, oppressive internship in order to get into this industry. Anybody, Absolutely. anybody can do it. And I, and I, they're watching people succeed even against this otherwise like pretty insular industry. Yeah. Yeah. Like so you, much you can learn by yourself, like uh, just watching a informative YouTube video, just, downloading a bunch of stuff from the Unity store. There, there's actually, in a recent South Park episode, they have a thing where the, the girls are going to the boys' clubs and starting to be, like, better and more educated about board games and D&D &D than them, and they're, like, really flustered by it. And they have, like, a much bigger, better club that the girls <clears throat> put together, and they reference that, like, oh, I just went on YouTube and learned this thing, and I picked it up, and they're like, oh, okay, we'll get, a, like, a miniatures game where they won't be able to you know, compete, and then the girls come in and go, oh, you don't even paint your miniatures? Like, and they're, they're constantly being like, we, we learned about this and are already much better at this on every level, and it, a lot of it, like, they kept referencing kind of how they would have meetups online, or just all these kind of new things around how people organize 
uh, what I think were previously pretty under the, not under the table, but, you know, very specific places that you would kind of congregate or, or actually enjoy yeah. these things. All right, let's um, let's let's uh, wrap things up. I think we, we've we've had covered a lot of stuff. Um, let's see. Don't we just go around and like say one thing that hasn't been mentioned that we just want to to like. Oh yeah, sure. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, let me go first. Good. Twenty tens. It's uh it's been a great decade for Monster Hunter. Like twenty ten and Monster Hunter three came out on the Wii. And Monster Hunter 4 came out on the 3DS, then Monster Hunter World on, like, uh, PlayStation 4 and so on. And, like, you know, in the aughts, Monster Hunter would be, like, poorly reviewed in America as, like, oh, this game is too clunky. But I guess, uh, actually, yeah, Dark Souls did pave the way of, like, hey, you know, you can, like, lose against the monster learn its pattern and then come back that's part of the fun like it's okay yeah it's okay to uh drink a potion and then have a monster shoot you with a fireball because like you drank a potion in the middle of fighting a monster (laughs) (laughs) yeah and um on pokemon uh black and white on i think the ds that was the last 2d pokemon so that was very beautiful um, now Pokemon's, uh, the main games are fully 3D. Uh, there's Dragon's Crown, uh, Odin Sphere remake, or I guess a remaster. Like, lots of very cool games. Yeah, really good variety. Sean, any uh, any closing thoughts from you? Uh, yeah, so I want to make like kind of two related thoughts when I think a lot about this decade and how games are. And something that I've been thinking a lot about recently is when we talk about indie games and uh, other games that are happening, I think a lot about um, the consumption patterns related to what we were talking about with influencers, where it's entirely possible nowadays. And we, we even talked about how people want more single-player games in a world where it seems like multiplayer is a thing. But I'm noticing that it is entirely common for someone to play by a game on their own and then watch someone play the game as well, not because they... They didn't want to play a game, but because they wanted to experience the game from someone else's perspective or enjoy it with them. A lot of the draw of Twitch and YouTube and Caffeine and Mixer now is that people can interact with those players. And the the, the kind of overall thought that keeps striking me about it is, is that I think prior to this decade, it really felt like in order to get a game out and get it be successful, it was like there was a, a finite amount of people that would play your game and you had to get that audience and i think what i'm learning now is that especially if you look at influencers and people playing games and taking them is that everyone is okay playing a game having an experience moving on and they expect it so there are certain games that like you just need to kind of puzzle piece it into someone's life where there's a, some combination of playing it on your phone on your switch on your playstation on what, whatever devices you have access to watching someone play it if maybe you don't have time to play it or you want to see their experience. And there's just this rich tapestry of experiencing games that really came into being in this decade. And to me, it makes me like really excited because it means like there's room for everybody in the industry now. Um, because if you talk to most game developers, they won't think of themselves as competition to each other. Not really. Like if you People often joke to me like, oh, do you like hate Riot or whatever at Blizzard? And it's like, no, not, I mean, not really. Most game developers... Are starting to recognize that you know they're all into it we're all in this together we're all delivering experiences 
generally things that we want to play. And there's enough devices and people and uh, consumption styles versus when we had them in the previous decades that now everybody really can get the games they want or has a much better way to get games they want, experiences they want. And there's just going to be an endless supply of them. You could argue there's too much or too little, but to me that's something that's really, really struck me about um, the last five years. But I think it, it really started um, in this decade, that, that kind of, again, that I'll call it the, the tapestry of experiencing games. It's just a, it's just the thing you tap into now. It isn't just the thing that someone that doesn't, isn't just the thing that gamers do, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I would say, um, uh, for, for me, uh, as I review the last decade, uh, what, what strikes me is I, I just feel generally, uh, optimistic you know, which 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 is very different from the 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 aughts, which was like a lot of um, there was a lot of like doom and gloom. You know, there the, the things were getting shaken up. Uh, companies you thought would be around forever were like uh, shuttering and being absorbed into other companies. Um, you know, everyone thought like uh, social games would take over, and like uh, traditional games would disappear. And uh, I think the last ten years have shown that's that's not true. Um, it, it's games are pretty as diverse now as they've they've ever been maybe more 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 than ever and um, you know it used to it used to have a lot of like uh, paranoia about like oh man like no one's gonna make the games I like anymore right uh, but it's it's just not true um, there's there's so much variety out there um, and uh, I'm, I'm actually really optimistic about the the next generation I'm I'm, I'm, I'm Big fan of Gen Z. <laughs> I'm not. I don't. I don't shake my head at the kids. I, I find uh, it's almost like I have more in common with uh, a lot of the young people coming up into the industry now than even uh, my own generation. You know, like they they grew up uh, pretty agnostic about things. Pretty platform agnostic, right? You, you don't have like the Sega versus Nintendo wars so much anymore. Um, pretty genre agnostic. People play all sorts of different games, um, and uh, like they 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 don't care what country the game comes from either. Like you know, like I, I think people don't regard like uh, like anime or Japanese games as like weird and foreign. Like it's everything's like pretty mainstream. You just get get a lot of good good variety now. You know, so I I feel optimistic about the the future. I think. Um, I think whatever you like, whatever niche it is, it's it's probably going to survive. You know, it's a big, big world, a big connected world. You, you, if you have a cool game, like you, you can get enough people uh, together uh, behind it. Hopefully, a at least a better chance now than before. All right. Cool. Any, any, any other closing thoughts? I'd say it's games kind of feel like like your favorite game developer. It's like going to a bakery or a cafe or a restaurant where you can like you like the food there and then uh, there are some games that are just so huge you just kind of it's like Starbucks so of course it's going to be there but it's not like it's going to wipe out any other games um, yeah that seems to be the opposite of what's going on with movies because yeah yes. of course he's saying the the triple A movie is pushing out all of the double a movies but i think that can be an entire other podcast oh yeah yeah definitely for sure yeah i think uh the only thing i wanted to add is i heard from a lot of people 
over the last decade that VR was going to be a thing. And obviously the technology for it is improving dramatically. Um, But there's something that I really enjoy about the fact that we live such busy lives and that what games are doing, the reason that we all know that like cross-play and device agnostic is ultimately the future is, is because like things start fitting into our life the way that we need them to. And VR is still striking me as, it says something interesting about how gaming isn't just about immersing yourself. Um, it's about connecting with people. And uh, I think a lot of people, at least this is my personal opinion, VR is not catching on because it requires you to disconnect yourself from other people to be immersed in your own world. And that's just not something people value as much um, as you might think. Uh, I think mobile and switches, like what we said, are doing well because you can play them wherever you are and you can be in the same room with your friends or your family and also enjoy them. You can move them to a TV. You can be on a train or a plane. And uh, so it's like that combination of the games you want to play that are made by people that give a shit about what they're saying in the game and that you can play it anywhere that you want. Like those are all like just really inspiring things to me. And I, I don't mean to make it at the expense of VR, but I remember if I compare it to what people were saying at the beginning of the decade, it's a very interesting place that we've landed. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, adding to the VR comment, I guess our closing statement uh, will go on a bit, but um, <laughs> yeah, you would think like, oh, VR porn games are going to boom. But uh, I just read recently like, oh, sex doll sales have like drastically increased in China. So... <laughs> that tactile experience is still like beating VR. <laughs> okay, just just so we don't close on sex dolls. That's that's a good yes. point though. <laughs> um, that is a very good point. Yeah, I, I would say yeah. I, I I it's worth it to everyone listening. Like think about what the discussion was like going into this decade and where things are now, and and how different that is. You know, like like. Like as Sean was saying, everyone was thinking VR would take off. Everyone was thinking about like hardware innovation. Um, you know, people are thinking about ways games would fundamentally change. Um, and let's say distribution models certainly those have. But um, I think the core appeal of gaming um, has largely stayed the same, and that's that's sort of my big takeaway from from this decade. Like the way I enjoyed games as a kid. You know, like single player, multiplayer, you know, being immersed in that world, but then also like talking with friends, having a sense of community, you know, uh, playing in the same room, laughing together, like, that's what it's about, and uh, I, I think that's what it will continue to be about well well into the next decade. I agree. Yep. Yeah. Okay, then my last thing to say <laughs> is that Closing on Death Stranding is great because the game is about everyone going into their 3D printer isolated personal world and then the payoff of making a relationship in that game is meeting them in person and like, you know, giving them a handshake. Yeah. Yeah, that I, I think that game's going to be what connects this decade to the next. I think that's going to be the exemplary game. Yeah, agreed. All right. Okay. Let's uh, let's close it up here. Thanks, thanks everyone for listening. Um, this is what our, our third ever podcast, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. How, how are you guys feeling about it? 
Good. Good. I'm enjoying. Yeah, yeah. I think I think we're we're gonna continue to to get better at this. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I look forward to, to, to making this a regular thing. Let's 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 keep it up. Okay. Yeah, sounds good. See you next decade. Yeah, see you see yeah. you next decade. Yep. Mm-hmm.